Hello and welcome to Wired Foresight. I'm Greg Williams, the Deputy Global Editorial Director of Wired. So across our newsroom, the Wired team spends its days asking what it would take to build a better future and to inspire the people who want to build that future by telling stories about the world's biggest challenges and the individuals who are trying to solve them. So we're excited to talk to some of the speakers at an event we hosted last November in London. All of them are focused on the same goal, addressing humankind's most pressing challenge, climate change. And while it's easy to become overwhelmed by the sheer scale of what needs to be addressed, global heating, renewable energy, biodiversity, decarbonising the global economy, agriculture, food, there are many stories of hope, innovation and action that we'll share in the coming episodes. Today, I'm delighted to welcome the first of our guests, Wired Impact speaker, Guy Vince. Guy is the author of the groundbreaking work, Adventures in the Anthropocene, for which she travelled to over 50 countries to map the way that humans are altering the planet forever. Her latest book, Nomad Century, is a deeply researched examination of the inevitability of human beings migrating north, how best to manage that process, and why it's an opportunity for developed countries. Gaia, thank you so much for joining us. Great pleasure to be on, Greg. I'd love to dig in a little bit more to your book and your reporting. Clearly, kind of the central thesis of the book is that you're, we're entering a new era of mass migration caused by climate change. Some people talk about adaptation, but for many people, this is simply just not going to be possible. I'd love if we can start by you giving us just a sense of how you see the scale of these changes. Yeah, well, exactly. We're, it, migration, Climate migration is already inevitable. I mean, it's already underway. And I've seen a lot of climate migrants um, across the global south, mainly. But of course, as we know, climate change is affecting people everywhere now, not just in the tropics and not just in the poor world. The United States had more than 3 million people displaced by extreme weather events last year alone. And then, of course, there are other extreme events. Um, Pakistan, for example, had uh, more than 30 million people displaced in a week by um, extreme conditions. So what we're going to see is more and more of these events and more and more back-to-back events. But it's not just the extreme events that we're going to see because as climate change increases, what we see with temperature rise is an increase in year-on-year drought, which it grinds away at people's resilience and ability to deal with one failed harvest or one other disruption, like a, a weather event that takes away their house. They find it much harder to recover from each one, especially when they are back to back. So increasingly, as the temperature rises, what we're going to find is for large swathes of the tropics, places will become increasingly unlivable for large parts of the year. And it's not just the tropics, it expands up actually into southern Europe and further south and particularly affects coastlines, uh, river deltas, many of the world's biggest cities. And people will simply not be able to adapt to these extreme conditions. They're going to have to move. And, And movement actually, migration is actually a type of adaptation that all animals use and humans are no different. Yeah, it's interesting because you talk about tropics, you talk about near rivers and and coastlines. Obviously, this is where human beings are. In the book, you write that migration will save us because it's migration that made us who we are. So obviously, 
there's a section at the beginning of the book where you talk about almost like the history of, of migration. How would you characterize sort of the difference between sort of this historical migration and, and what we're going to be seeing over the next next few years? Yeah, well, what I mean by migration made us is it's it's a fundamental part of who we are, that humans are not defined by any particular environmental niche. So if you look at our closest living relatives, evolutionarily speaking, that would be um, chimpanzees, well, they're still living in the same tropical forest environment that they were five million years ago. And we evolved relatively recently, just a couple of hundred thousand years ago. And look where we live now. We live everywhere from the Arctic to tropical forests, to desert landscapes, to wetlands, to oceans. We live really everywhere. And that's partly because we are able to adapt our environment to ourselves to make it more habitable but also because of our incredible sociability. So we live in these super cooperative groups. We form these networks which allow us to migrate around and move, avoiding environmental difficulties and moving to safer places where, yes, we adapt the landscape, but we also adapt ourselves in a lot of ways to those different places. We adapt our cultures and our tools and technologies. And we've been remarkably successful at that. In fact, it's the adaptations that we've made of our world that have led us to be this incredibly dominant species that has taken over the planet and changed pretty much everything about it, including its climate. And that's really where we are now. We've made our climate great so far for us, but we're pushing it too far now and it, it's we're pushing it, you know, we've avoided the next ice age, which could be really tricky for us, for our agriculture. And we wouldn't be able to necessarily support 8 billion people that we are now in an ice age world. But at the same time, what we've done is we've gone too far. So we, we're actually pushing the livability of the planet too far. And that's going to need some sort of major adaptation. And I'm suggesting that the best adaptation we've got really for this extreme climate is migration, is a planned and managed migration away from danger using these social, these strong social networks that we have. So this planned migration, this displacement is being driven by what you describe as the four horsemen of the Anthropocene, which I think is a great phrase. Can you just dig into what you mean by that? Yeah, well, so temperature is going up. We, we all know that global temperature has risen. It's perhaps about 1.3 degrees now above the pre-industrial average, officially 1.2 still, but um, most scientists agree it's about 1.3. We're likely to exceed 1.5 degrees. That's the designated sort of uh, accepted safe climate that we shouldn't exceed. We're likely to exceed that probably as a temporary blip in the next year or so, driven by the Toba eruption. But more persistently, certainly within the next decade, we're going to be consistently above 1.5 degrees. And then that temperature is going to continue to rise. Now, most people won't really notice that slight increase in temperature. That's not the problem. The problem is that carbon dioxide in the atmosphere is, is holding a lot more energy in the atmosphere. And this more energy is what is pushing these extreme weather events. And so the four horsemen of the Anthropocene are fire, wildfire, which we've experienced in London, as well as um, obviously in Australia, in the United States, and, and really across the world. Drought, which um, affects people, hydropower, agriculture, really deadly, and of course, the natural environment, the nature that we all rely on. Extreme heat, and that leads to deaths and also uh, crop loss and uh, livestock deaths. 
and floods, these extreme deluges. And we're having one after the other. And all of these are a threat to to infrastructure, to people's livelihoods, the jobs that they can do, and to their lives, as well as their food and to nature. So these are the four things that are really going to make places completely unlivable for people. And and let's be serious about what we're talking about. Places already are unlivable. There are lots of places in the world that people cannot work outside after 10 in the morning. You know, rice farmers are up at night with headlamps to do their farm labouring because it's just too hot in the day. And when they are working outside, as we've seen really tragically in places like Qatar, which is unlivable already for many months of the year outside, they're dying of heat stroke or kidney failure or other um, heat-related causes. So we're just going to see an increase in that, and that's the huge problem. So obviously these drivers of displacement that you've just described come on top of already significant challenges that we face particularly in the developing world around poverty, war, inequality, food shortages. Is it fair to say that climate change is basically exacerbating all of these other challenges that human beings face? Yes, Uh, it's not normally one thing. Climate change is a threat multiplier. So what it does is it takes people that are already facing inequality, they have conflict or they are minoritised in some way because of uh, their ethnic group or their religion or their skin colour. And poverty, uh, food shortages, all of these things combine to make a place too difficult to stay. Most people want to stay. It's actually difficult to get people to move generally. And what I'm trying to do with this book is I'm trying to say you know, we need to talk about this now and we need to make it easier for people who are in this situation to move. And that means doing it before they're so desperate that they've left it to the last minute, that they just didn't want to move because of all the difficulties um, that that entails and the costs and the challenges you face as an immigrant, where you don't speak the language, where you don't have that social network, you don't have rights, you're not able to work necessarily. It's it's a really, really hard decision for many people to make. And that's not even bringing in the difficulties of actually crossing borders and making those perilous journeys. It's much better to have it planned and agreed in advance where people can do it. They have some agency over the movement and they're not worsening their circumstances too much. I mean, this is... This is a tragic situation that people are being forced to move and it is generally the poorest people in our global society that are being forced to move. It is it is an absolute tragedy. But it shouldn't be a tragedy because of the discrimination and the difficulties they face in the new place. We really need to work uh, on that. I'm sure that many listeners are going to be familiar with the planetary boundaries concept, which I think you, you mentioned earlier on. It was developed by the Stockholm Resilience Centre, so I think there's nine planetary boundaries within which humanity can continue to exist. In the book, you have a really sort of similar framework, but it's geographical. I was wondering if you can talk us through that, please. Yeah, so these the Stockholm Resilience Institute, which came up with these nine planetary boundaries, it was a really interesting kind of thought experiment. I think it's quite hard to quantify in the way that they did some of these boundaries because they are very codependent, interdependent. And um, I think it's a really interesting experiment to start with. But with all of these things that we do when we try and project forward the physical earth systems and we try and integrate that with our human systems, which are so 
so difficult to protect the social systems that we live within, the social boundaries, the political and economic boundaries that we live in. It's very hard to do. But what we do have is really good understanding now and really detailed modelling of what an increase in the concentration of carbon in the atmosphere will do to temperature and what that means for things like precipitation, temperature at various levels, um, extreme events like the distribution of hurricanes, all of those sorts of things. So we know that the temperature is going to continue to go up. We also know that the population of humans on the Earth, which is already above 8 billion, is going to go up to at least 9 billion. It could possibly be 10 billion or above. And then it seems quite likely that that population is going to go down again. But nevertheless, we need to be able to feed these people. And if you look at the globe as the temperature rises over this century and you look at the projections for extreme heat, for other effects like storms, like precipitation, flash floods and that sort of thing, it's quite easy to see that there is this kind of broad belt of extreme events which goes across the equator in either side of the tropics in quite a wide band. And then above that, there isn't a lot of land below it. Above it, the land becomes much, much more livable. So there is nowhere on earth that will not be affected by climate change. Everywhere is being affected already. But those impacts will be much less and they will be much more manageable, partly because there are fewer people living there at the moment and partly because the wealth and the institutions there make it easier for people to adapt as well. So what we're looking at is an increasingly habitable sort of Arctic region actually. Mm. And uh, we're going to see cities in the north become expanded and new cities built. Because if you look at these models or you look at these maps, you can see immediately where is habitable. And what happens to the areas that are uninhabitable? Well, they won't become completely deserted. I mean, you know, I would suggest a lot of the Middle East, if you look at Dubai, if you look at Qatar, these these places are basically uninhabitable for months of the year. The reason that people are able to live there is because they live in a sort of a, an artificial environment of air-conditioned shopping malls and everything is brought to them. They All their food, all their water, the air is cooled and that's fine for a small, very wealthy population. It's not fine for a city of 22 million people like Mumbai, for example. You couldn't have 22 million people living under those conditions. We just don't have the energy. And at the moment, if you look at Mumbai, 9 million of those people living in slum housing which are these tiny little concrete boxes with metal roofs where the temperature is already around 8 to 10 degrees hotter than the city proper and, and the city is um, at least 50 degrees for several months of the year now. You know, it's not possible to expand air conditioning units to all of those slum houses. And those slum houses, by the way, are growing because of climate migrants from the countryside. And that's true for cities everywhere. We're going to take a short break, but we'll be back with more from Guy Vince in just a moment. You mentioned earlier on just where human beings are located at the moment. So on coasts, by rivers, many millions, maybe billions of people living in tropical zones. I'm just curious, do you think that there's any chance that we might develop the necessary tools, whatever they might be, to mitigate 
some of these challenges and to enable billions of people to remain in, in some of these popular cities? Or do you think that really cities like Mumbai, we have to start thinking about how we move those, whatever it is, 30 million people sooner rather than, than well, later? Well, look, we, we, are, we are going to have to adapt everything we do as a global civilization. That's already started. It's underway. The expansion of renewable technology is phenomenal, much, much faster than I could have predicted. It's going at a huge pace. And, you know, when I spoke to you in November last at, at that really inspiring conference, we were at a stage where in order to meet any of our goals, even to have a 50% chance of meeting any of our goals, we would have to roll out this expansion, this phenomenal expansion, five times faster. Well, since then, it turns out that partly driven by the horrific invasion of Ukraine, that expansion is now already so much faster that we only need to double it, or about two and a half times, I would say, to have a chance of meeting those 1.5 degree goals. But I mean, I don't think anybody thinks seriously, certainly no scientists think seriously that that's still a possibility, staying, you know, staying below two degrees is a possibility. We are, even with our incredible rollout, we are going much too slowly in terms of mitigation. The temperature is going to rise. Already we are experiencing one horrific climate event with huge related displacement after another. There are already unlivable places on Earth. But yes, you know, this is not inevitable. This migration is not inevitable. So it depends on various things. It depends on how fast we mitigate, because the faster we mitigate, the fewer people will have to migrate. The more money and resources we put into adaptation, the fewer people will have to migrate. People will have to migrate nevertheless. They already are. But we also have, aside from the social tools, and migration is a social tool essentially, we also have technological tools. We could turn the temperature of the atmosphere down artificially. At the moment, we're turning it up artificially by injecting carbon compounds into the atmosphere. What we could do is inject sulfate particles into the stratosphere, the the top levels of the atmosphere. And that would have the effect of reflecting some of that solar energy back and so reducing the temperature. And we could set that to whatever temperature we wanted, 1.5, 1 degrees. Um, So we, you know, that is a potential solution as well. That's uh, it's interesting you brought up geoengineering. Obviously, you know, we have to stop putting CO2 into the atmosphere. We also have to remove it you know, through carbon removal uh, technologies. But you're also, are you advocating geoengineering? Do you think geoengineering, I mean, it's, it's a fairly controversial approach, but do you think that really at a certain point, states and governments are going to have to think, okay, we need to do this in order to ensure that we don't have this enormous kind of catastrophe on our hands? I mean, to be honest, I think it's almost inevitable that we will be using it in the coming decades. I absolutely Mm. do. Um, What I would like is for us to stop ignoring the whole issue or making it, it's, it's taboo in a lot of circumstance, in a lot of circles. I would like us to actually discuss it and make democratic decisions about under what circumstances we might do it whether or not we decide as a society we don't want to do it, in which case what's our alternative solution to many millions of people potentially dying or hundreds of millions, possibly billions, having to move under terrible circumstances. I would like us to start a conversation about it, to to test some of these things out, to decide, you know, what would the regulatory protocol be, where, which countries would be allowed to deploy it, from where. 
rather than yeah. what I absolutely fear will happen or otherwise is a desperate nation decides after some huge tragedy that they're going to deploy it themselves as a rogue yeah. state, as we would yeah. maybe describe it. Because I do think that this is a technology that could solve a lot of these problems. And when we find ourselves in dire straits, um, it's quite likely that it will be deployed. I would much rather that we've had those conversations and made democratic decisions about it first. It's, um it's interesting that you talk about uh, you know, someone deploying it um, unilaterally, almost like a rogue state, because that's actually a scenario that's mapped up by one of the other speakers of Wired Impact, Kim Stanley Robinson, the uh, science fiction writer in his book, The Ministry of the Future, where he describes what happens when one particular state, in, in this fictional case, it was India, does decide to uh, roll out the technology you just described. So, I mean, uh, you know, that's science fiction, but we are very much living in uncharted territory right now and the temperature is rising. And whether it's a country like India that deploys it and the rest of the world calls them a rogue state or whether it's a European nation that faces some catastrophe and decides to deploy it as emergency measures... That's something that is very, very plausible and very easy to understand. And it would be great if we had came to an agreement that an emergency measure like that was acceptable to society and what the parameters of those were and how long and who would deploy it and under what legal framework and what compensation might be offered to people who might face uh, negative consequences of this. You know, none of this is being discussed because the issue itself is not being discussed. And I think that's the most yeah. dangerous thing, actually, not to have any dialogue about it in democratic countries. Guy, if you don't mind, let's dig into the geopolitical implications of all of this. So do you think that mass migration is essentially going to make what are essentially quite arbitrary geopolitical borders effectively meaningless? I think climate change is doing that alone. You yeah. know, um, the borders that have arisen through various battles deep in history or more recently, they are quite an odd thing to bind our lives and our potential by, aren't they? You know, whose hereditary heir landed on a throne that um, inherited this amount of territory and therefore that defines the boundaries by which you can decide where you can work or where you can bring up your family. I, I think they are not fit for purpose. And then it's certainly not fit for a world where the climate is changing geography and habitability. You know, some some territories, some boundaries are drawn on lines that are already changing. For example, they might trace the middle of a river and that river has either dried up or it's moved north or south. And so therefore the boundary has moved as well. These are not fit for purpose in a globalised society where people... Um, where our economies are all linked in the way that they are, where our um, where our future on this earth is linked, because what we're facing is not just local disasters. We are facing a global crisis, and it can only be met by us acting in a globally as joined up way as possible. And that means that instead of only concentrating on trade agreements and uh, money flows between countries, we also need to talk about our biggest economic resource, which is human labour and how that can move yeah. across borders. It's completely insane that that we kind of hobble ourselves by reducing that labour flow. Yeah, it's, yeah, exactly. Migration is often framed as a negative, but obviously, you know, you see many countries of declining populations, Italy, Japan, they desperately need migrants to provide labour. I mean, the UK needs it. Yeah, we're, we're absolutely, you know, we're facing yeah. a demographic shortage, a crisis in many countries now across the world. It's not just in the global north. 
where yeah. people are not having enough babies to support this population, which is also ageing. So not only is there that imbalance of age, but, but the ages are actually increasing. So people retiring, you know, who is going to look after you when you um, have Alzheimer's or you're disabled in, in your bed because you're living so long and there just aren't enough people? Well, the only people who are going to support this system, this equation, this uh, social transaction that we have where the young support the old... Yeah. which is what our society is built on, we're only going to manage that through immigration. Right. And countries are going to start competing for immigrants um, shortly. Even the most xenophobic politicians that in one hand are saying, no, no, push back the boats and send them to Rwanda or nobody can come in, are at the same time desperately trying to get people in because there are shortages of everything from highly qualified skilled specialists like doctors and dentists to um, farm labourers to care workers to hospitality workers or across the board. I mean, migration is not a security issue. It is fundamentally an economic yeah. issue and, of course, a yeah. humanitarian issue. And it's not being treated like that. It really, it, that really needs to change because it's just, this conversation is so stuck in, in a mindset of countries at war, of the wrong sort of competition between nations. It's not fit for the societies and the globally joined up economies that we have at the moment. Sure, yeah, the, the conversation, as you say, is stuck. It does seem like it's very zero-sum at the moment and, and it's not really certainly look, looking forward at the challenges that we face. But uh, just on that note, in terms of the politics of this, obviously the science about climate change has been very clear for some time. Many political leaders are very slow to act for, for all kinds of very, very complex reasons. How do you think we can best connect the reality of what we know, your, what you outline in your book is coming, without any doubt it's inevitable, with policies to mitigate this and to ensure that this mass migration occurs in the, with the best outcomes we can engineer? I mean, it takes leadership and it takes vision, of course, and we have been sadly lacking that in many, many countries lately. And it's really alarming, actually. There are some leaders around. I think Antonio Guterres, the Secretary General of the United Nations, is um, doing a particularly good job of that, of recognising that climate change is embedded in all the other crises that we face right now from inequality to conflict to poverty to food shortages to literally everything you know climate is the backdrop onto which everything is but it's the architecture of human society and it drives everything so we cannot have an energy policy a food policy infrastructure any of this without recognizing the key role of the earth systems in all of this and in our social and human systems so that's part of it. But what it takes is honesty. And what we need is leadership that actually spells out honestly what we face. And that is, you know, catastrophically rising temperatures and what that actually means. And then spells out what the choices are, because we do have choices. We do still mm. have plenty of choices. But with each year, those choices diminish. And some of those choices, all of them, involve some level of compromise. So these need to be spelt out. So if we want to keep below two degrees, then we need a coherent policy that it will take either this or this or this, and it will result in a bit of hardship here or a bit of, and, and policy can help compensate that. You know, if this is spelt out honestly, people will get behind it. People want to live in a 
clean world where they're not breathing in um, filth causing deaths by asthma on the way to, you know, on the school run. They want to um, live somewhere where they can swim in the rivers without it being full of agricultural effluence and sewage. They want to live in a world where people aren't constantly being made homeless by um, giant unmanageable storms. And this is possible but it takes honesty. And many countries are actually starting to realise this. But, you know, my own country in Britain, we have this very incoherent leadership on this, where one minute we're talking about getting to net zero and hosting the COP climate conference and talking about targets. And the next minute we're talking about opening a new coal-fired power station. We're talking about fracking. I mean, this is not a coherent policy. This does not engender trust from um, the public. This is this is a huge, huge upheaval for everyone. And they need a coherent narrative. They need a positive vision of where we're trying to get to and what steps are needed to take that so that we can all get behind it. This should be a huge social project that we all get behind because it's in all of our interests. Well, well clearly these challenges can only be solved by enormous cooperation between states. So I've got a two-part question for you now, Guy. One, which is like, okay, is there a single country that's preparing well for this and, and what can we learn from them? And the second part of the, the question is like, Fundamentally, are we going to need to create new forms of intergovernmental cooperation, new institutions in order to deliver this challenge? Yeah, I mean, this is this is a challenge that starts with the individual and starts with the global governance. It's, you know, and they meet in the middle. It needs to come at all levels. This involves planning at local government level for an increased population of migrants. I mean, the world's population is anyway increasing. And yet, are we hearing this expansion of infrastructure and planning? Are we hearing about new housing being built? No, we're not even meeting that for our existing population. So this has all got to change. So it's got to be at local government level. It's got to go right up state, regional cooperation. And yes, there needs to be led by, because this is a global crisis that affects people movement intercontinentally, let alone um, internationally, I think what we need is a a new body with teeth that can help manage this through perhaps a global quota system for migrants, with coordination of labour movement, with coordination of the funds for this from uh, countries of origin, host countries. This is a huge, huge movement on the scale of our attempts to do something about the climate crisis, that huge industrial civilization problem that we face. And that's been very slow. It's been the uh, intergovernmental panel on that has not had teeth. It's proved some really interesting precedents. For example, every single country, whether they're tiny or whether they're huge, has got a seat at the table. And I think that's really interesting and has never been tried before in this way. And that's how the IPCC works. And that's that's really, really interesting for these COPs. And also, you know, if you look at the last COP, For the first time, it was agreed that rich countries would pay poor countries for loss and damages. That is an unprecedented recognition that this is fundamentally an unequal burden that is being faced by some countries over others. And I think that sets a good precedent for future cooperation over things like international human movement, which is going to be a really big problem talked about over the next few decades over the next few years, let alone decades. So some countries are preparing a lot more. So if we look at some of the most affected countries, Bangladesh has probably done more than anyone else in terms of 
adaptation, um, whether it's livelihoods or uh, infrastructure adaptation to the extreme challenges it already faces, where entire villages are being washed away, rice paddy fields are inundated. You know, I've visited several times Bangladesh over the years where rice farmers then became shrimp farmers, then became garment workers in slums in the city as that increasing unlivability develops. They're also, um, in Bangladesh, they are helping prepare people for the different life that they will experience and giving them the best chances possible as future migrants, training them for jobs that they might need in the city, helping move people to adapted cities away from overcrowded ones. They're doing quite a lot there, but there is no getting away from the fact that Bangladesh is going to be a country that produces enormous numbers of migrants. It already is because the country is getting inundated from both ends. You know, the the rivers are breaking their banks, flowing down and causing huge washing away of agriculture and, and crops. And then from the south, the Bay of Bengal is expanding over villages and fields And you get the salinification and the groundwater is then polluted with seawater and it rises up the water table and, um, yeah, a huge disaster. And then there are cyclones and and all sorts of other issues. In terms of understanding that populations are going to expand, I think it's interesting that Canada is openly, um, it has a policy of increasing its population, trebling its population over the next few decades. And that's a policy that it's, it's not hiding, you know. <laughs> many, many countries feel that they have to hide the fact that they're trying to increase immigration. Canada is not. It's got plenty of policies to help with inclusion, with expanding provision for everything from healthcare to housing to education. It's part of uh, Canada's plan to expand its economy and become um, of growing importance over the coming decades, which it will be, partly because it's, um, it's just climatically lucky where it is. One final question, if you don't mind, if you can just look forward, if you don't mind giving us a sense of maybe best case scenario, but also the scenario based on your reporting that you think is most likely, give us a sense of how migration will have impacted the planet by the end of the century. Well, I mean, the best case scenario is that countries come to an agreement about cross-border movement and nations still um, persist and a national identity has changed and people accept that people can be citizens from anywhere and can contribute to an expanded sense of what that country is about. So what ideally happens is that people in their school leavers or people in their early 20s, which is a very, very good time to make a migratory move because people move a lot at that age anyway. And so it's much easier to integrate and fit in with a different culture and a different language and a a different way of doing things if you move at that time when everybody is moving. And they move, they take up education or training opportunities in new, safer countries. They establish themselves and enlarge the economy, enlarge the productivity of the cities they move to, and then safely bring out relatives, elderly parents, um, their children, their nieces, nephews. And there is a sort of a much easier route for people to go with a lot more support from community members already there, while also giving back remittances to those who stay behind to help with adaptation in those places. And of course, during this time, during this uh, century of upheaval, we also 
massively restore our planet. So we change and adapt everything from our energy systems to our food production, to our infrastructure and the materials we use for that, to the way that we build and manage our cities so that buildings become producers of energy and recyclers of resources rather than um, just absorbers and users of these precious resources. You know, it could be so much better. We could live in a much cleaner, productive, inclusive, diverse, multicultural societies um, that thrive among um, a much more restored natural world with an abundance of cheap energy. That, that's, uh, that would be my ideal. <laughs> I think that's actually a really great place to leave it because what you've just sketched out does sound like a world in which I think that we would, we would all choose to live. So Guy, thank you so much for taking the time to speak to us on Foresight. And thank you for you know, what's an incredibly thoughtful book, Nomad Century. It's, it's full of so much great research and offers, I think, a, a genuinely hopeful sort of take and a practical take on how we can, we can, we can plan uh, for the coming years. So thank you so much for being with us. Thank you so much, Greg. It, it was great to talk to you. Next week, we'll be examining an extremely timely topic. With oil and gas prices rocketing in many parts of the world over the Northern Hemisphere winter due to Putin's war in Ukraine, there is no more urgent issue to address than energy. Allied to this is that the shift in dependence from fossil fuels to renewables is one of the key ways that we're going to stay within the 2% increase in temperature agreed in Paris in 2015. In response to this, we're seeing an enormous explosion in the opportunities for businesses and entrepreneurs in the energy sector. Next week, our guest is going to make the argument that we're at the early stages of dramatic growth in green energy, one that has parallels in the explosive growth of the internet over the past 20 years. Please join me in conversation with Greg Jackson, the CEO of renewable energy company Octopus. One final request, if you're enjoying this series, please do give us a five-star review wherever you get your podcasts. It really does help us grow the wide community. Thank you so much.